Let's begin with the word of prayer. Thank you this morning, God, that we can open up our Bible and that we can read it and we can understand it. So as we come with open Bibles, open our hearts, open our minds, turn on the flood of understanding and the flood of light within our soul so we can come to terms, grasp, and be enlightened and be blessed by your word, by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last several weeks, uh, Davis and Bren led us in a study of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. We saw Jesus revealing more of his divine nature. We saw the disciples had unbelief even after the miracles took place. And we learned about true faith. When we see God working in our lives, do we recognize his work? The disciples had a problem with that. Do we acknowledge him? Do we turn to him? Do we bow down before him? Last week we left off with Jesus walking on the water during the storm. And he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. They were utterly astonished. That miracle had water wind, Jesus walking on the water. The whole thing was just astonishing. So if you people have looked ahead today, uh, we're not going to have anything that's seemingly so astonishing. But it's very important and very interesting. We're going to talk about food. We're going to talk about the scripture versus um, just the traditions. Um, And also we're going to see some things about Jesus uh, and about this time that he came. They're going to be very enlightening to us. And we're going to learn more about um, what's permissible, what's not. We're going to learn about the central position that Scripture has in our lives and in our faith. So before we move on to chapter 7, where all that is, there's a final scene here in chapter 6. And so let me read here from verses, uh, the last four verses of of chapter 6. When it had crossed over, They came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. 
and as many as touched it were made well. In the final scene of chapter 6, we see again Jesus' compassion for the people. This is familiar. This is what happened every day of our Lord's life since his baptism. Once they knew where he was, the word spreads, and the people came from everywhere. They were bringing sick people on their beds and brought them into his presence, imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. Because we know it had tassels on his garment, we know that Jesus was an observant Jew. Judaism held that men should wear on their robes four tassels on the corner of their robes. They called it the hem of their garment. Literally, the tassels of the garment robe. And so from this and from other scriptures, we know that Jesus, like any male adult Jew, would have worn that kind of robe with those kind of tassels that marked him as someone under the covenant. But much like that woman who said, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I know that I'll be healed. And then they were. This shows the compassion of our God. So now we move on into chapter 7. Verses 1 through 23 is what we're going to be covering today. And it's one of the most exciting, helpful, liberating passages in the Bible. Jesus makes a shift and opens up something for us in this passage that's really different. It's a break from the Old Testament. It's a break from tradition. And it's so really critical for us. It helps us understand the human heart and the nature of who we are. It's probably like, unlike any other story in the Bible. So verses 1 through 23 is a big section, and that's why I need to take it all at once this week. One of the major themes here is tradition versus Scripture. And how we know we can misuse our traditions and our religious practices that don't come right from the text of the Bible. They're drawn from habits of those who are older in the Lord than we are. They're drawn from the religious elders. We can take their habits and we can use their habits to find ways around what God clearly tells us to do. So we need to be wary of that. That's the idea Christ is trying to teach here. He wants us to draw people back to the heart of God, which is in the word of God, which results in us obeying God from the heart. And it's not outward religious practices to make us feel like we're better people when we're actually ignoring our actual sin issues. In the first part of this section, we see the potential for sin when following the traditions of men rather than the commandments of God. And that's in verses 1 through 13, and I'll read them now. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, it's if a man, it's a man, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have has gained, have gained from me is Korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the word of God by your tradition, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many other such things you do. All right, so that's the first part of the section today. So let's take it a verse at a time here. So verse 1 says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, okay, so what we see here is that the Jerusalem, Jerusalem leaders sent scribes from Jerusalem. This is significant because in the Jewish mindset, Jerusalem is the center This is where God causes his name to dwell in the temples. And it's the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Pharisees that are a set of people who separated themselves. They're the separated ones. In verse 1 it says, they gathered to him. So it really feels like they're here for the purpose of trying to challenge Christ, not to learn from him. So why do they want to challenge him here? Here he's getting a lot of attention. He's getting a lot of followers. And people are listening to him. But he's not echoing everything the Jerusalem leaders are saying. Instead, he's restoring people back to the purity of what God originally gave to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. So verse 2. I'm going to read verse 2 through 4. They saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So these scribes and Pharisees had seen that some of the disciples were eating their food with defiled hands, that is, unwashed. 
Remember, Mark's gospel was written to a Gentile audience, so they were not familiar with that. And so he provides them an answer to the question he knew that would be on their minds. What do you mean, defiled hands? It just means that their hands weren't ceremonially washed. So that's not a sanitary issue. It's a ceremony issue. So obviously you want to wash your hands before you eat. This is not about that. This is about ceremonial cleanliness. They have many traditions they observe, like ceremonial washing of pots, copper vessels, and other couches, and they wash when they leave the marketplace. Mark gives us a glimpse of what was an ongoing practice. There's a lot that can be said for tradition. Everyone has a tradition. So tradition is not automatically a bad thing. When you eat at home, you sit around a table in a certain way. You recall the last meal you had with your family, everybody sat in a certain spot. You sleep on the same side of the bed. In a community, tradition provides a sense of cohesion, a sense of belonging. It helps us know our role. I think of all things growing up that were never written down anywhere, but were just traditions. Uh, Men would do the physical work, Uh, They went to work, they mowed the lawn, in my case, they shoveled the snow, and my mom made all the meals. Dad would always drive the car. We had traditions with weddings, with Christmas, with all the holidays. So tradition can be very helpful, and it can make us more mindful and respectful of the wisdom of those who have gone before us. So I'm very glad to say, here at Sovereign Grace Bible Church, Redondo Beach, we are part of a Reformed tradition. A tradition helps us often to know what to expect. Most churches settle into a tradition. We have. Our church has a liturgy, which is part of our tradition. So is everything else. When we meet, who sits where, who does what, We sing the psalms, we close with a benediction. As we go through the rest of the New Testament, the pastoral epistles in particular, you will see that tradition is sometimes spoken of as a very good thing. But like government and like fire, tradition is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. In Jesus' time, the tradition was abused Tradition had turned toxic. We see that tradition turns toxic when we enforce man-made traditions as God-made commandments. The issue was washing your hands. Now, they weren't thinking of germs as we are in our modern hygiene. It wasn't a cleanliness thing. It was a purity, ritual purity issue. The priests of old had to wash before entering the tabernacle. We find that in Leviticus. If you came in contact with a bodily discharge, you had to wash your hands before you would be unclean. There was no Old Testament requirement commanding you to wash your hands before every meal. But apparently the Pharisees and then the majority of the Jews held in keeping with the elders that they all must wash 
and wash their hands in these different basins and dining couches and implements. And you could read in a document that the Jewish leaders made sometime after in the first century, it's called the Mishnah. You could read all about these. It probably captures the spirit of the first century and how they fanatically almost uh, went through these rituals. Judaism, in many ways, you can find detailed instructions on these purification rituals in that document. And it's a large document. Now, before we automatically be critical of these sorts of rules or something like the Mishnah, we should try and understand why the first century Jews and before had developed these traditions. They wanted to spell out in detail what the written law of Moses wasn't specific on. They wanted to make sure that there was an appropriate fence around the law. For example, if you don't want your kids to bring mud in the house, you would say, take off your shoes as soon as you walk in the door, put them in the hallway, or leave them outside. Or you might say, completely undress in the backyard and let me hose you down before you come in. And that's what we mean by a kind of fence, making sure that, doubly sure, that no dirt got in the house or no sin. Uh, got into your body as they felt it was coming through the food. We're going to make rules so strict that it will never happen. We also should see that these Old Testament leaders wanted it to be, at least initially, as holy as possible. If God required it of the priests, it should be required of all of us. And this is another way to maintain our separation from the world, which is another thing they wanted to do. It's another way to show that we're different from the Gentiles. And we wash our basins, and we wash our hands, and we go through the ceremony before we have our meals. So it wasn't necessarily a problem that they would have traditions. In some sense, it was admirable. It's noble. In some sense wish that we would have a certain sense of a similar zeal with the intent to live holy before God. At the end of the day, the issue of the Pharisee is not that they were necessarily stricter with their application of the law. It all sounds very good, but it's evil at its core. These ceremonial washings were evil at their core because they create a real problem between the people and God. Verse 5, And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? This was the second time they did this to Jesus. The first time, you may remember back in chapter 2, when the disciples were walking through the field on the Sabbath day, and taking grain, and they'd rub it, and they'd get the chaff off of it, and then they'd eat it. And the Pharisees said that they were working on the Sabbath day. So are these Pharisees asking a question when they said, why do your disciples not walk and eat with defiled hands? I don't think they are. I think they're making a statement. They're pretty much saying, you must teach your disciples our traditions. 
The accusation isn't that what they were doing is unbiblical or even unscriptural. They're not in violation of God's laws. It's they are violating the traditions. These Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem literally show up to disagree with Jesus. It's as though the agenda, their purpose, is to find something wrong with Jesus. Now they look at Jesus and they don't see anything wrong. But they see the disciples and they see something wrong. They find what they want. Verse 6 and 7 and 8, it says, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. You've heard the saying, the best defense is a good offense. We see that with Jesus here. Now, Jesus could have responded to their accusation and bowed to the pressure and maybe offer a defense. But look at what he says. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Now, the word for hypocrite there means an actor or a pretender. And this is really important to be understood. Religion is full of wearing hats and carrying staffs and wearing rings and robes and growing beards and shaving beards. And all these external things can seem like they're putting on costumes and playing a part in a play. And so it's the same Greek word used for hypocrite. That's somebody who plays a part in a play. And when the person goes on stage, they're not themselves. They're somebody else. So the act of putting on clothing, putting on the beard, putting on the dress, doing the religious thing is there. Actually, Jesus says it's a sham. It's a play. It's an act. They're using tradition to rebuke him. And he's using scripture to rebuke them. And what I think is really interesting is how Jesus introduces it. Did you notice it? Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. So we look at Isaiah 29, verse 13. And it says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So in the context, Isaiah is not prophesying in the future. In the context, he's talking about the Jews of his time, seven centuries before Jesus. But Jesus says that Isaiah was not only speaking of the Jews of that time, but he was speaking as a prophet of the future, making a future prediction. But he's speaking as the mouthpiece of God, not only the Jews of that time, but any Jews 
would be like that as well. So this is interesting. Jesus quotes Isaiah from 700 years before these events took place. And Jesus says that Isaiah wrote about these events and these Pharisees, these teachers of the law of the first century. And this is really the crux of this whole teaching. Notice this. Isaiah says, and Jesus is quoting this, they teach man-made ideas and his commands from God. So traditions of men are taught instead of God's word. That's really important. God's word is given to us as an eternal treasure, unchanging. It will never go away. It will always be there. The problem is not God's word. The problem is us. We like traditions. And with those traditions, we squeeze out God's word. This is a problem, as you can imagine. It's a root problem. It's not supposed to happen. We are to love God's word, not the traditions of men. But we fear people. We're afraid of people. And we find traditions very easy to follow because they are usually dealing with external things and small things that you do at certain times, like fasting and praying and giving and attending. They are easier to understand and to follow. We just go through the list, check the boxes, and we let God's word go to the side. I remember years ago when reading the Old Testament, I got frustrated with Israel. Why won't they just honor God? Why won't you serve him and follow him and obey him? What were they thinking, disobeying him so often, turning back to idols? Why did they want to go back to Egypt? Do they not remember it? I remember thinking these things, and at some point it hit me. At this point, I realized that I'm the same way with my sin issues. And all of a sudden, all my arrogant, judgmental attitude of the early Jews changed. I realized, thank you, God, that you didn't forsake them after all, because maybe that means you're not going to forsake me. And so I had to grow in theology before I could really rest in the finished work of the cross. But he hasn't forsaken them, and that's encouraging to me but I learned from their mistakes. This shows the danger of tradition, and we all have traditions. That doesn't mean they're all wrong. But you should at least be aware that there are these things that you have in your Christian life that are extra-biblical traditions. Go on to verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. He says, you have a fine way. That's pretty sarcastic. That first line, in a fine way, you have a fine way in order to establish your tradition. The next thing that happens after Jesus calls them hypocrites is he gives them a specific example of what they're doing wrong. So we can learn more about what it is they're doing that Jesus is really upset about. He was saying to them, you are experts. Keep this in mind, he calls them experts here, right? Like the pros. 
So now we get a real example um, that Jesus gave around this, in this instance. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your mother and your father, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Now, okay, that's the commandment of God from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Honor them, and if you speak evil of them, you can be put to death. Now, there's more to the detail of that commandment. It wasn't just a passing phrase of speaking evil. There was more to it than that. But the point is that God's heart towards children honoring their parents is a really big deal. Jesus is saying God's word stresses, underscores, underlines how important it is to respect your mother and your father. You get the point. They're supposed to respect their parents, take care of them. And if they're in need in their older age, you are still to take care of them. But you say in verse 11, if a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God. And that's in parentheses, that is, given to God. And you see again, Mark, speaking to the Gentiles, is helping the Gentiles out with a little explanation. Korban, well known by the Jews, but not the Gentiles, is a phrase in the Hebrew. It means literally a gift to God. In Jewish custom, it was a practice of devoting things to the Lord. Jesus is not opposed to that tradition, but he is passionately opposed to traditions that get in the way of the very thing they're supposed to be preserving. So Jesus gives one example, Korban. Leviticus 27 explains the process for vowing something holy in the Lord that could be made and would commit something in your possession as a devoted thing to God. So you can make a vow for a piece of property or a vow for some article of clothing or a vow for some part of your herd or of cattle or sheep. And you dedicate that and say, this is holy to the Lord. And there's a provision for doing that in Leviticus 27. Over time, what happened, according to their tradition, is this is, became a kind of deferred giving plan. It's like a son might declare his property korban. That means when he dies, it goes to the possession of the temple, sort of writing out his will. And I'm going to give my property when I die to the church, he says. Now, in the meantime, before he dies, it's his and according to the stipulations, nobody else can do anything with it. Someone comes along and says, I want a piece of it. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. It's Korban. It's dedicated to the church. And it's dedicated to the temple in their case. And you can see how this would work. You get a double benefit. First of all, once you declare it to be Korban, nobody can touch it. And second, when you look a very and you look very spiritual doing so. So you're saying everything is going to the church. Oh, wow, he's dedicated. He's written his entire home and estate. He's going to the church. What a godly man he is. 
So let's get to verse 10, uh, 12. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, verse 13, thus making the void the word of God by your tra tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. But then what would happen is mom and dad are sick, and mom and dad need help. And you're supposed to honor your father and your mother, and you're supposed to care for your mom and dad. And the son says, Mom and dad, I am so sorry living in a seven-bedroom house. But it's Corban, and it's really for the Lord, so I can't do anything for you. I'm sorry. In this way, Jesus says, you let them disregard their needy parents, and so you cancel the word of God in order that you hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example Jesus could have given many, I'm sure. There is a danger in tradition. It can lead us actually to making an excuse for disobedience. And that's where Jesus actually rails on them. He's not mad that they're doing the traditions. He's mad that they're using them to get away from what God actually is commanding them to do with their lives. Notice that he accused them of neglecting the command of God because of their traditions. He doesn't say rejecting the command of God, which is very different. So the question I have now for myself is, is there something I'm neglecting with my tradition? You have tradition, right? You go to church at certain days at certain times. Maybe you open the word of the Lord and read it at certain times. Maybe you pray over your meals. That's a healthy tradition. These are healthy, in my opinion. But are they causing you to neglect the high calling of love towards your fellow man? and the high calling of holiness in your character? The question is, in my heart, is it near God or is it far from him? That's a good question. It's not about how often you go to church, how often you read the Bible. Those are good indications of closeness to him. But it won't give us the whole picture. But how is my walk with God really? So Jesus is the reformer here. He's trying to bring them back to the God of Israel. He's a reformer in the sense like Moses and Luther. And I think he gives us a clue as to the job of a real reformer. We think about the Reformation in the 1500s. The idea that behind reforming, the idea behind reforming is that you're not starting with something new. You're going back to something old. You're restoring attention and focus on the old pure thing of the past. That's the idea. Well, Jesus was a reformer. He brings people back to two things, the word of God and the heart of God. We see it right here. He's upset with them because they're ignoring the commandments of God, because they have traditions of man instead. And he's also upset because they're not worshiping in, genuous, in, in um, genuineness. But they're worshiping in vain. 
In this first section, we learned that when you ignore tradition, mere tradition, it does not defile you. Now we'll go on to the second part of this section. You are defiled by the evil within. Jesus is making a remarkable declaration. It's given to us parenthetically by Mark in verse 19, as we'll read, and sums it up thus, he declared all foods clean. So let's read the entire passage, verse 14 to 23. And he called the people to him, and again he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From, for from within... Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Quite the passage. So let's look at it, each verse. Verse 14, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Jesus is a teacher. Jesus is going to teach that it is what comes out of the body that defiles it. Out of the heart of sin, because you are a sinner. You're not a sinner because you touched something dirty, and that somehow defiled you. No, it's all backwards. You sin because you're a sinner. Sin naturally comes out of your heart. Now, this is a scene change because he gathers the crowd. He's had a conversation with them, and now he gathers the rest of the people in. He's using this controversy to give them a right understanding of God. It's not just interesting. He's not just interested in telling people where they're wrong. He's interested in making them right. Verse 15, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You're defiled by what comes out of your heart. So here's a person, and the idea is that food and things that go into the body and make the person a dirty person? Well, that's the tradition. That's the tradition of men. So as a result, it becomes, you become a sinner. That is wrong. He states that it is the things that come out of a person which are the problem. But notice, that's later. He doesn't tell, he doesn't explain this uh, to the crowd. He waits till later when he's with the disciples. Verse 17, 
And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. This is classic. His disciples asked him concerning the parable. They didn't want to say anything in public because we don't want to admit that we don't understand what you're saying. That would be embarrassing, you know? When you say these things, we're going like, uh, yeah, amen, that's right. But I can imagine them looking at each other with the look like, I have no idea what he's talking about and what he means. So now they're in the house, away from the crowds, and they can have a candid conversation with Jesus and be real, be honest, and find out. What does he mean by that? Also, it's interesting that Mark calls this a parable, even though it didn't seem like a typical parable. It wasn't a story of any kind. But it was obviously something that they didn't understand. Verse 18, And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? So the disciples, they're totally confused about all this. I think the disciples' example is, a, is an example of the problem that we might experience. They knew they were free from traditions. Jesus had taught them that. But what they didn't understand is what were they freed for? Because they were not, because they were not Uh, doing this and that, and they were not washing their hands. They knew that they were free. They understood that they didn't have to do those things, but they didn't seem to understand what they were supposed to do. They didn't know what really being righteous was all about. Verse 19, Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, thus he declared all foods food's clean. That's in parentheses. So this is really important. Jesus is intentionally using an illustration that's almost crude. You eat your food. It goes into your mouth. It does not go into your heart and dirty your heart. Food goes into your stomach. It does not touch your soul. It goes into your stomach. And from there, skip to the end of it, it ends up in the sewer. That's where it ends up. It had no change on you. It fed your body. It nourished your body. Food can't defile your heart. So Jesus is saying uh, thus that he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. Now what that means is that there were certain foods, for example, if you look at Leviticus chapter 11, um, and these foods were off-limits to Jewish people. Now, that was in the law. And Jesus is saying that these elements of the law, the dietary law, are going to pass away when he dies on the cross and raises from the dead. They are no longer going to be valid for the people. We are free to eat everything. All foods are clean. You can eat everything. You need to think about what this means. Number one, think about this. Jesus has just taken the law of Moses and stated 
something that means he has authority over the law of Moses. He has just said that where it says you cannot eat foods in Leviticus 11, Jesus says now that you can eat anything. Nothing is off limits. Why? How could he say that? Because Jesus died on the cross. This area of the law, called the ceremonial law, has passed away. Ceremonial law has to do with sacrificing of pigeons and lambs and bulls for sin. The ceremonial law has to do with things like if your house has mold in it, there are certain things that needed to take place. If you had, if you had certain kinds of skin disease or if a woman had her cycle, all these sorts of things meant that the person was unclean for a season until they came back to the temple, until which time expired. Then they went to the temple, performed a sacrifice, and they were clean. Also included in the ceremonial law are dietary restrictions. And we see Jesus ending these dietary restrictions. And Jesus says, all foods are clean. That means you can eat anything. There's nothing off limits. Nothing. Understand? That is what Jesus taught. Now, in the New Testament, many people argue over food. Many of the believers in the early church argued over food and what you can and can't eat. And many of them were Jewish. Many of them were from societies where idols were worshipped. And there were all sorts of conversations about food. And the apostle says, please don't argue over food. You can eat anything and do not let anyone judge you about the food that you eat. So this is found in the book of Romans chapter 14, which Wes read for us earlier. It's also found in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, and other places as well. Do not let anybody judge you about the food that you eat. You are free to eat everything. Now, let me also say this. I know a lot of people who come from, or a few anyway, that come from Muslim families, and they've come to know Jesus as their Savior, and their heart is made clean because of his blood, and now they believe in Jesus and you know they still won't eat pork? It's not because they don't understand. No, they understand it. They're free. They are free to eat anything, but they've never eaten it. They love the Lord, and they understand that they can eat everything. I also know that there are people, some people who are believers, but for health reasons have decided not to eat certain kinds of food. And let me give you a bit of a warning about this whole thing. Sometimes, under the banner of good health, people will stop eating certain kinds of foods. That's not wrong. But what becomes a problem is when they begin to preach and teach and to promote and push and to persuade others to stop eating certain kinds of food for health reasons. And sometimes those health reasons become things like the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so you don't want bad things in your body. So if you eat foods that I'm telling you you should eat or should not eat, and you are sinning. And so there's a fine line that becomes crossed. And suddenly, where we have liberty, there's pressure not to eat for health reasons. If you want to eat certain foods, fair enough. Go ahead. But do not become a promoter and a pusher of foods on other people. Jesus plainly says you're free to eat, and you're free not to eat. 
And so, guess what? You're free to eat. So verse 20, and he said, verse 20 through 22 to 23 through the end. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Defiles him. So he's speaking to his disciples now. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So Jesus says, I'll tell you what defiles a person, those things that come from the heart of man. And he gives a list. He starts with evil thoughts. You could even think that evil thoughts might be the title of the rest of the 12. Of evil things, most of them are self-explanatory, and I'll just highlight a few of them. You notice first on the list is sexual immorality. In every vice list of the New Testament, sexual immorality is listed, and in most cases, listed first, which means that we can never treat sexual sin as okay. Sensuality, that is, indecency, sexual excess, excess, impropriety. Is there any sin that we are more consistently guilty of in the West than a pervasive sensuality? I thought to myself before, if, I, if Christians from earlier centuries would come and see Christianity in the West today, what would surprise them? What would shock them? I think there would be two things. One, they would be certainly shocked at our amazing wealth and prosperity. They would live with more conveniences and more luxuries than the kings and queens of their day. And second, I think they would be utterly astounded at how we are at home with all the sensuality and sexual immorality around us. We just sit back in our living rooms and watch it to relax. You see, the word envy, in Greek it means an evil eye, a jealous uh, a fam, a jealous of family or friends, of finances, of opportunities, jealous of others' personalities or position or success. And you see the word at the end, foolishness. Now that doesn't mean unintelligent, but rather unwise. It's morally ignorant. Those are things which come out of you, which make you defiled. In this section, I think we also get a really interesting point related to sola scriptura, one of the five solas. Sola scriptura is the doctrine that the Bible alone is our final authority on things that we believe as Christians. The Bible alone is that final authority, as opposed to, say, tradition. There's parallels here between Jerusalem leaders and the Pope and the papacy, and the Roman teachings that we have in Catholicism. Let me give you some parallels. From the first century Judaism, Jesus encounters in the passage in Mark 7, and all the stuff that, say, the reformers like Luther were dealing with in Rome. Very similar. So the question is for you today, am I following all the right rules? 
That's kind of the wrong question. Nor is the statement, I don't have any rules because I have liberty in Christ. Both of those are wrong. The idea is that we want to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that should be the main thought as we go through our days. Am I walking in the spirit or am I walking in the lust of the flesh right now? How do I just serve God? Walk in the spirit. I want to be doing this on a daily, regular basis and not confuse myself by thinking if I check certain boxes, now I'm a good Christian. And then forget that it's a heart issue after all. Following him from moment to moment, day to day, honoring him. We see a warning as we read the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, Jesus gives us this warning. And he gives it to the church of Ephesus. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patience, endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus complains to them that they left their first love. The Ephesians were probably shocked to read this letter. And it probably took them a while to realize how true it was. Because they were going about a lot of the same practices. They hadn't changed. But the heart relationship with God, that's the thing that was missing. It was missing something somewhere along the way. So he tells them the solution. Repent. Do the first things you learned. Go back to those first works. The first thing in your walk with me, remember those days when it was just so pure and simple and you could say, I belong to God. I'm going to live my life for him and his story. That's it. All foods are clean. Even grasshoppers, if that's in our future. Whatever he has for us. Next week, we'll continue on this book of good news from Mark. We'll meet the Syrophoenician women. And we can marvel at her faith and her persistence. And we'll see Jesus reveal more of himself and his power and wisdom. So let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful gift of your word. 
We thank you that it lights our path, shows us the way, keeps us from error. Help us, Lord, see the traditions in our lives that are keeping us from a closer walk with you. Help us stay true to you, Lord. Help us to continue to love you as we do, for you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.